All right, welcome to another episode of the Legacy Wealth Podcast. Today we have on the show Cody Littlewood that I know from GoBundance and my co-host uh, Mike Klein from Cryptoble Capital. Welcome to the show, Cody. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, good to have you here in uh, Colorado. You were originally uh, coming out of Miami, so it's good that we got to snap you up. We got a little skiing in this weekend? Yeah, I, well, we didn't have any skiing. We had a company offsite. I was going to be skiing today, but uh, it was probably fine. We were up at Breckenridge, so going from sea level to... Uh, 9,500 square feet. I think I would have probably been dying right now. So well, you're, you're less likely to get hurt doing a podcast. Yeah, way less, sure. yeah, way less. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this show is all about uh, helping accredited business owners understand uh, everything about alternative assets. So yeah. anything that's a regulation D style filing. Uh, and today we're talking to Cody about uh, multifamily. So Cody, give us a little introduction about what uh, what exactly you do in multifamily, and then we'll uh, we'll dive in deeper there. Yeah, sure. Um, and so, let's define multifamily for our for our sure. listeners. Okay, yeah. So apartment buildings. Um, so we're specifically in kind of workforce housing apartment buildings, and so there is you know Class A. Um, we're sitting in Class A. You know, beautiful. You know, uh, uh, you know, brand new apartments. Um, there's kind of Class B, like workforce housing, um, and then there's kind of Class C, Class D. Uh, or affordable housing, right? And so I think sometimes when people hear workforce housing, they think affordable. Affordable, though, generally has some sort of government component. Like they give you a huge break on the taxes, a very specific type of debt. Maybe they co the government will actually co-invest with you. And it's really geared towards people that are making, you know, $30,000, $40,000 or less a year. Worse, our space is specifically like, we are like really middle of the road, people making fifty-five dollars to $60,000, $70,000 a year. So people that can afford $1,300, $1,400 rents um, and really that kind of middle of the road. So they're they're doing too well to have government assistance, but not so well that they can, uh, you know, they can afford kind of, you know, class A, $2,500, $3,000 rents. And that sounds like it's solving actually a really big problem and in, in fulfilling a need. Like talk to yeah. us about that. And what does the, the average tenant look like? Yeah. So this is, uh, it's pretty interesting. And I, th I think it's a really good point. We don't talk about it enough, but um, there's no new supply coming online. Apartments, there's a ton of apartments coming online. But just as I talked about, right, you either, uh, it costs about $250,000 a unit to build. Um, not something, you know, super nice, right? Like, so class A, you know, very high end, you know, for 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 young, wealthy professionals, that's going to be like $350,000, $400,000 a unit to, to produce. But um, most class A or like kind of the A minus, you know, $2,000 Sunbelt, uh, multifamily garden style multifamily, it's going to be about $250,000 a unit to build. And in order for that to be profitable, um, you have to do one of two things. You have to rent it for 2000, 2200 a unit, um, or you have to have some sort of affordable component. So either the government has to kind of step in. And so there is a bunch of new supply coming on for people that can afford 2000, $2,200 plus rents. Um, and there's a bunch of supply coming on for affordable. So people making 30,000, 40,000 less. Mm. Um, but there's no new supply because you just cannot build, you can't build for it, right? Because in order to build for it, you've got to, in order to be able to have a profitable venture, right? And, and, and housing, right? We're incentivized, both our investors are incentivized and we are incentivized to, to, to turn a profit. And so in order to turn a profit, you know, you have to be able to get, you know, for those rents for $1,300, $1,400 rents, something like that, you know, you have to be able to get into a unit for all your all in costs at like 160, 170,000, maybe 175. 
um, all in. And you, you mean like for one unit in an apartment building? For one unit, yeah, for one unit. So if we're unit. talking 100, 100 units in an apartment building, it's 100 times 170. Yeah, 17.5 million. Got it. So, um, you know, so 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 you just have to, uh, you know, you the, the economics don't make sense. And so there's no new supply. You cannot build, right? No one can build for those costs unless we have a massive deflationary effect on land values, um, or, uh, you know, or, or construction costs, which I just don't see right now. Um, there's no new supply coming online. And so all of our apartment buildings are in crazy high demand because we are the biggest segment of the market for renters, right? It's the market rate, people making 50 to $65,000 a year as a household, um, which is kind of your average median household income in most of our markets. Uh, but there's no new supply. So we'll get kind of into your secret sauce, but it sounds like in this asset class, um, specifically this kind of strategy, it's really important to figure out your economics. But if you do, the advantage is you don't have a lot of competition or maybe a better way to put it is it's really easy to have a high occupancy rate. Yeah, yeah. You don't, I mean, there's there's a lot of other multifamily guys doing what we do. Um, but so you have competition on the buy side, right? But you don't have competition on supply really. Right. So you guys are really able to extract full value by having a high occupancy rate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We maintain really high occupancy on a stabilized property. It's probably sitting at like 98% occupied. So. Okay, so what you're telling me here, so I have my, my perspective LP hat on. Sure. And I'm and I'm thinking, okay, uh, Cody is, you know, working in multifamily in a niche or a segment of the market where there's not a lot of supply coming on the market. And so when Cody and his team are able to get a deal um, that matches very specific buy box, they can churn out uh, and get be profitable because you have the system in place uh, where you know that you can get high occupancy rates due to the demand in the market. Yeah, so what we like to say is that we invest like wealthy families in America have invested for generations. So we buy, you know, we buy well-located property in good growing markets that there's a supply demand imbalance. Um, we create and force value so we aren't affected by 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 market fluctuations and we hold for a significant amount of time maximizing uh, both tax benefits up front but also tax benefits on your income and tax deferred benefits on your uh, returns of capital so he has his pitch down I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Cody's He's got his numbers man yeah. well they believe in their strategy yeah. so so this is kind of the show part of the show where we talk about just the asset class in general let's just talk yeah just spend a few you know, like a little bit on real estate in general, then let's define, you know, a little bit more multifamily, why that strategy is interesting. And sure. Cody, do it from the perspective of, I have a, I have some money, I want to invest it. I can invest it in any asset class. I can invest it anywhere. Why this asset class? Why specifically um, the focus that you guys have? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I mean, I will say, you know, I think you'll get some maximalists that will only, but I, I think real estate's just part of your allocation. Right. I think you should be allocated to public markets. You should be allocated to private alts like us, um, you know, and not just in the private alt spa space, not just us, but probably, you know, you should have some exposure to, uh, you know, perhaps to hospitality, to retail, um, you know, to, uh, to, to, to oil and gas, et cetera. So, uh, you know, I think, but I think you usually, you generally want exposure to real estate or specifically multifamily. I think a, because it's kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs shelter, um, we feel pretty good about, you know, regardless of what's going on in the world, people need roofs over their heads. Um, you know, we like it obviously for the, you know, tax efficiencies on your income, um, as well as the ability to offset, 
uh, to offset your other passive gains. Um, if you have a spouse that's a real estate professional, you can also offset active gains. Um, and, you know, I think that in general, right, it's really a, it's really kind of an income play, um, you know, a cash flowing income play that is fairly well hedged against inflation, right? Inflation rises, rents rise. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a real asset. So I think in particularly in, a, in an inflationary environment, I think that's very attractive, um, you know, and I think just, just the, the track record of real estate in general, I think it's really attractive to be in the, you know, it, it, it's shown itself time and time again. Yeah. Um, I do like to say that, uh, you know, I think people often think that real estate appreciates real estate doesn't appreciate. I was telling you guys this earlier, uh, you know, buildings depreciate, but land appreciates. So well-located right. land in good markets appreciates. And so I think you also have kind of that aspect. And so that's kind of why I allocate to real estate. I like it. I like our specific strategy because it's not, impacted by market forces. We control the, you know, we, we force cash flow and force equity. So we're not trying to ride the market up. Um, we, uh, you know, we, we don't rely on market forces. I think, you know, if you look at, you could break down return summary on any, on any asset class, not just real estate. And you could say, okay, what percentage of returns come from a specific business plan execution? What percent come from appreciation? And, you know, just general market forces and maybe what percent of returns come from, you know, I, I'm trying to think of another example, but maybe, uh, you know, tax strategy or whatever else. I would say like 90% of our returns, um, you know, when we were projecting out returns, 90% of our returns come from execution of the strategy, not from market forces, like not from expecting the market to carry us up. So there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Um, I think most people are aware there's tax advantages. Let's start there for real estate. Sure. But they don't really understand how that works. And specifically, maybe as an LP in this fund, what's the benefit? How does that benefit you as an LP? Yeah. So um, give us give us some numbers. Like yeah. invest 100K. <laughs> oh, great. And, and like, you know, I okay. get a different. So I'll give you deal, some ranges. But, yeah. um, generally, multifamily, we are able to. So there's there's something called a cost segregation or the, there's depreciation, right? So we get we have big advantages in depreciation. We can do things like cost segregations where, um, you know, the first year that we purchase something, uh, the study will come through and it'll say, OK, the walls have a 27 year lifespan. And so that's got a 27 year straight line depreciation. But your windows have a 10 year uh, lifespan and your fixtures have a five year lifespan, et cetera. And so it'll categorize things into different. Uh, buckets, and it'll allow you to take um, it allow you to take more depreciation up front, and so you're able to offset. It, it, it puts losses into your into your kind of your passive income bucket uh, that you can use to offset real gains. And just real quick, depreciation. Yeah. Let's define that too. Depreciation. So, like you know, this this mic is going to depreciate because there's going to come new technology. It's going to get used. It's going to be you know, there's going to be uh, wear and tear on it and it's going to depreciate over time. So a $500 mic, when you buy it on purchase, right. is now going to be worth $100 in five years. Exactly. And so in theory, um, that's what the IRS is allowing you to do is to offset the depreciating value of, you know, of the real estate itself outside of the land. Um, so the walls, the, uh, you know, the cabinetry, the flooring, the windows, the fixtures, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and there's different schedules that you can do. Um, and then also the jobs cut and, or the tax cut and jobs act, um, also did something called bonus depreciation, which allows you to not only front load it into five year, 10 year, 15 year schedules, but allows you to take, I think everything less than your 20 year schedule and take it up front in your first year. And so mm -hmm. right now you get to do 80% of that, um, as of this year. Uh, and so that reduces 
your tax liability. It reduces your tax liability against your passive gains, Mm -hmm. unless you're an active real estate professional or your wife is or your spouse is. Um, In that case, you can take it against active gains. And so I think sometimes, you know, there are probably a lot of sponsors out there that say, oh, you can, it'll, you'll offset your income. That's only true if you have passive income or you have a real estate professional in your family. So you can hit it against your active income. But for example, part of your passive income is going to be the cash flow from the property. Right. And so you can generally totally offset all, you know, so that tax, that cash flow that's coming into you from your investment mm-hmm. um, into the property is totally offset by the, is totally offset by the, by the depreciation. Um, so it's basically it's tax free income. And let's define the passive income versus the active income real quick. Yeah. So, so passive income would be you invest with me as an LP, you collect what, what we call mailbox money. Yep. So that's your passive income. Yep. You go to your, you know, you have a, your, medical professional or a, you know, tech entrepreneur or whatever else you have a W2, that's your active income. Got it. Okay. Helpful. Yeah. Um, so there's that there's depreciation. So when you invest, say you invest a hundred thousand dollars in a multifamily right now, you can probably expect around 50 to 60% of your equity. You probably expect a 50%, uh, a $50,000 loss in your first year on your K one that you can use to offset future income, current passive income if you have other investments that are passive um you know and uh, uh, you know and you can use it to offset future income as well if you don't have so it. so for simplicity's sake i invest 100k 50 50 of it uh i get to, to depreciate in in this yep. mock scenario uh i get 10k in cash flow uh from you maybe the first year and uh i maybe sold another stock for for a forty thousand dollar gain and now I can write off all fifty thousand uh, and not pay taxes on that fifty thousand. Yeah, it, it'll depend on the it'll depend on the gain because um, passive gains are not the same as capital gains. Um, but yes, but but generally speaking, and ask your accountant. I'm not yeah, accountant, yeah, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, yeah. not financial. But, yeah, yeah. So it won't offset capital <laughs> gains, but it will offset other passive gains. And so it depends yeah. on the you know I, th- I think it, it it does depend on the classification how you're you know, how your income's structured, et cetera. Right. But that is but a yes. huge advantage. I mean, as an LP, and I don't think it's like well known is that you do get to like basically claim that loss right away. Yeah. You get to claim a huge loss right away. You also get ongoing losses as you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, in general, right. Those ongoing losses are going to offset your cash flow. You also through the financing that we use, right. Uh, when you do a, you know, what usually we add value, the value of the property goes up, cash flow goes up. And so we then will refinance um, on the higher value and return a bunch of capital. And that is a tax deferred return of capital. Um, and so that's very attractive as well. So say you invest $100,000, you get $50,000 of loss up front. In three years after the value add is executed, we do a refinance. I mean, obviously it depends on the interest rate environment. Maybe right now it wouldn't be 50% of your equity, but generally we're targeting kind of trying to return 50% of equity after the refinance. That $50,000 that's coming back into your bank account that you can go use to invest in other investments is on a tax deferred basis. So you wouldn't pay taxes on that. Mm. And that's any, if you use it for any investment or for like investments? No, no, any investment. Any investment. Yeah, it's a return of capital. It's a tax deferred return of capital. You could, you could, Blow it on Vegas if you wanted. So. Okay. <laughs> not, a, not a high return investment. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Statistically, but but you get yeah. to claim that. Yeah, I love you that. can do whatever you want with it uh, with your return of capital. I think the point is is it's, is it's a tax deferred basis, right? Um, yeah. And so. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So so I feel like I'm I'm pretty sold on 
Uh, you've been the best so far. Well, you do love your tax advice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, but talk about, I'd love to hear from you why you like your tax advantages. Cause you're, you know, high net worth, high income person. Um, how do you think about like your taxes? I think, I think it's, I think not enough people focus on it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I've paid taxes in 10 years. I don't think I've ever paid taxes. Really. I mean, okay. I've paid taxes. Let's be clear. <laughs> I was going to say like I've paid W2 income taxes. Sure. Um, and I've paid, uh, I've paid, um, uh, I've paid active income. Um, yeah, I paid taxes on active income. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, I have a lot of these uh, capital gains, you know, from selling stocks or from, uh, you know, that I've then offset from buying real estate. And I don't have to then pay taxes on those gains and I can keep funneling that money into new investments without yeah. losing my my basis of capital. It's probably has a huge compounding effect, right? Yeah, it so. does. Yeah, Pesco's really like actually like got me onto this because you know, I come from the venture world and you don't have a lot of these these tax advantages. Um no. <laughs> and I, and I think it's one of the the huge benefits of um of real estate that that I I believe like I said before everybody understands like like they would if you said do you know real estate has tax advantages everyone would say yes but they'd really understand how that works um, sure and yeah. even like down to the example we gave I think that's that's really valuable when you're thinking about you know this asset class in general um, so okay let's say I'm sold on real estate for all these different reasons why multifamily um, specifically I think we talked a little bit about that but if I'm the LP I'm thinking sure you know just like how's this going to, how's this sector supposed to perform over the next 10 years? Let's, let's, let's kind of slice it that way. Yeah. I mean, I think that, like I said, we like our, we've talked about supply and demand. Um, so I like being in a, I like being in an asset class where there's just, there, there's the impossibility of, of new supply, right. Or, um, it's probably a little bit simplistic, but you generally get the point. The supply demand curve is like very good in our particular multifamily space. Um, there's a massive fundamental sh uh, uh, shortage of housing throughout the United States. Um, and there are big demographic shifts that we like to take advantage, specifically in our markets, where there is a, you know, and this has been going on. It was accelerated by COVID, but it's been going on for, you know, for, for the past decade. Uh, if you read, there's a good book called Big Shifts. Mm -hmm. talks about demographic shifts in America. There's a massive demographic shift moving to, you know, away from urban core centers like L.A., California, et cetera, into Colorado, Denver, um, you know, down from the Northeast and the colder environments into the more, you know, business friendly, tax friendly, cost of living friendly, job friendly, um, and generally kind of red states with better weather. Um, and so that is a, you know, that's a huge migration trend. It hasn't slowed down. It accelerated during COVID. It'll probably slow back down to, you know, pr pr pretty normal clip, but you know, it's, it's, it's always good to have, you know, it's hard to fight market forces. Um, and, you know, like I said, I think we really like being, I'm a, you know, I'm not a super bright guy. Uh, I don't know if people are going to be like this app that I've created in, in, in five years or not. Um, but I do know people need a roof over their heads. Sure. Um, and so for me that it, you know, you're not going to produce, you're probably not going to produce 30% IRRs like you are in, you know, in, in VC or, or in, you know, certain, you know, private equity, um, but I think you're going to, on a risk-adjusted basis, produce great returns, right? And I don't think people look enough at, especially new LPs, um, they don't look enough at the risk-adjusted basis of returns, right. right? So, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, you know, 
everything is kind of based on a risk-free rate, right? The U.S. Treasuries, right? No risk, um, supposedly. We'll see. Uh, if the debt ceiling uh, defaults, <laughs> maybe there is risk. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a supposed risk-free rate, right? And the supposed risk-free rate right now on short-term bonds, say it's 5%-ish, right? Um, and then every, as, as you add risk, the market is... Markets are not perfectly priced. I don't totally buy into perfect market efficiency, but as you add risk, you're getting paid for that additional risk, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's risk-adjusted returns, right? And I think that what you're looking to do is find the crux of the maximum returns uh, with the minimum amount of risk. Mm -hmm. um, and generally speaking, uh, generally speaking, I think that real estate, you know, can produce these 15% IRRs while having pretty minimal risk if you're investing with the right people, the right strategies and have the right kind of time horizon, uh, you can produce excellent kind of risk adjusted returns because there is kind of lower lower downside risk. There's minimal downside. Um, there is downsides. Uh, investors always ask me like, like, you know, is this guaranteed? No, it's, it's, you know, like there's no, yeah. yeah. If you want guarantees, go buy, buy risk-free bonds. Um, but if you want good adjusted returns, I think real estate's the place to be. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about, so, so somebody's sold on real estate and they think, I, I think this is a classic thought is I'm going to do it myself. Um, <laughs> sure. and they think I'm going to do what Cody does. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's I'm talk about buy myself a five plex or, uh, sure. I like I, I get the value prop. I think it sounds easy. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, what it takes to do this full time as a professional. Yeah. I mean, some people often ask us like, what makes us special? And I actually don't think our strategy is that special. In fact, our strategy is the least special, most repl repl replicable uh, strategy out there. Anyone can go do it. Uh, you don't have to be a genius. Um, you can go do it. I think that what makes us special is really is, A, it comes down to our, you know, for being kind of sub-institutional sub or institutional talent. Um, but it really comes down to our team, our processes, um, you know, our experience, and our, you know, and, and just our, our, our time that's dedicated to it. So, um, you know, I think that you absolutely can go do it yourself. The strategy is, is perfectly, you know, you're perfectly able to go do it, but you better be able to, we underwrite about 2,500 deals a year, right? Um, on market, off market. We have five people that are dedicated to calling owners and finding off market deals. We have an entire team of analysts dedicated to underwriting deals. We're under, we're looking at 2,500 deals a year and we're doing four or five. So it's about 0.008% of deals or something crazy, right. right? So we're doing four or five deals out of 2,500 that we look at. So if you're going to compete with us, you better be able to look, have a massive throughput, look at a ton of deals, have an entire off market you know, team. We have institutional asset managers that, and auditors and analysts that look at that, that, that basically audit and question and manage all of our property managers to make sure that we are not missing a, you know, we're not missing a single beat. Um, we have construction managers that are out there in the field managing construction full-time. Um, you know, and I think at the end of the day, right, you really have to be dedicated to this. This is a full-time job. Um, you know, and if you're not going to be, if you're not going to compete with us at that level, I think you're better off finding somebody that can. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that people oftentimes think that real estate's passive. I can tell you if you're, if you want to run a good piece of real estate, it's anything but passive, right? Like it's, it's the least passive. There's nothing passive yeah, about real estate. Saying, for sure. Well, let's yeah. talk about what, <laughs> yeah. well, let's talk about that active yeah. management. What's included in that. And also sure. talks about the learning curve. Like you've had a ton of learnings along the way as, yeah. as well. I think of, I think of that as the cost of becoming 
the expert, right? And I think yeah. when I, I think that's important, right? Because whenever you're talking to a potential, you know, LP or somebody that's considering the fund, but they're considering maybe do it themselves, yep. um, it's like, look, like to get to where the professional already is, there, there's a lot of bumps in the yeah. road and 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 loss of money, right? So, so totally. yeah, right, yeah, yeah. that's the, <laughs> the ultimate bump. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I I think that um, you know, I've uh, I've I've cleaned up a voodoo chicken, uh, a, a, a lady who moved into an apartment and killed a chicken and smeared the blood into a pot uh, because she was voodoo, like whatever, like there's some sort of voodoo right. uh, thing that they do when they move into a new place. Wow. Um, to, uh, to, you know. And you have, had to go clean it up. In my early days. Yeah. 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't yeah. probably but that's, part of the, that's part of the active yeah. management. You know, I, I think like you said, sure. most people think I'm going to buy the property. Yep. I'm going to collect a check or, yeah. And they're, they're, they, they think, Oh, this class D property, the cash on cash returns look are like great. 20%. They look great, but right. they don't realize that like, like, like you haven't underwritten that there was a shooting here and now you won't be able to lease an apartment at this place for the next three months until like, you know, right. so or looked at the out. criminal score, the you know walking score. Yeah. Do you have yeah. the best relationships with a banker to get totally. like great financing? Or yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, and and so I think there's there's. Well, a, let's give uh, some more of those examples. These are good. These are good. Oh man, um, like something you 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 go back and do differently, maybe. Yeah, I think that you know, I think that it's um, man. I, I'm trying to think of all the things I would do differently. I think I would have never started out with like i started out with smaller deals yeah and like smaller deals are not easier they're just smaller right um same amount of work everyone says this bigger deals but you know bigger deal and and you work with better professionals right professional property managers better lawyers right you don't you aren't just working with some title uh you know lawyer not that title lawyers are bad but they're not you know they're that you know our lawyers are making fifty thousand dollars on a deal right and so they are you know they're they're they're, they're the top of the top of the top yeah right. um you know you're working with better bankers you mentioned uh you know debt right like we can always find we can always get much better debt on a 200 unit apartment complex than you can on a fiveplex um so i think i would have started doing bigger deals sooner um and working with better professionals sooner um i think you know i think i would have i think i probably would have paid attention i i made mistakes early on you know we talked about it like like you can, you can, you can, if you have enough money and time and patient and foresight, you can, you can always change a property, but it's really hard to change. Unless you have like as much money as God, you cannot change a neighborhood. Mm. And so I would have been much more, I didn't really understand, you know, this is what we were talking about earlier. You know, oh, this looks like this has better returns on paper, but you don't realize like all the things that come with it. It's really hard to change a neighborhood and you know, you can change a property. You can make a property, the nicest property in a shitty neighborhood, but it's still in a shitty neighborhood. Right. right? Um, mm. You know, so I think I would have paid a lot more attention to being in the right neighborhoods uh, in school districts where families want to move in, you know, in good household, you know, meeting household income, understanding market dynamics. Are you on the right side of the tracks? Are you on the wrong side of the tracks? Um, so there's all sorts of stuff like that. Um, what well, I want to highlight something like, sure. What does it take to get into bigger deals? Uh, other people's capital usually. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. So that's a, that's a big part of it. And, but also experience. Um, so there is something to be said for, you know, doing smaller deals on your own at first, um, because then you build the experience, you take your lumps, um, you lose your own money instead of other people's money. Right. Um, 
people often ask, they're like, they're like, you know, I understand the game theory around having skin in the game. Like it makes sense, but I actually am like way more terrified of losing somebody else's money than my own. Money. Oh, I oh, actually, absolutely feel the <laughs> yeah. same way. Yeah. Yeah. I actually feel like I take even more precautions. Oh yeah. Take more precautions. Way, way more with away with other people's, people's money, money than yeah. with my own. With my yeah. own, it's like, yeah, everything on red. You yeah. Know, with the, the, you know, so, yeah, yeah no, it, it's a, uh, um, well, you know, and I think that's important to highlight. So, you know, the, the pair kind of like the parallel example is, you know, a lot of people that want to do angel investing, they don't realize to get in some of the best or better deals, you right. have to be able to write a bigger, bigger check and they may not be able to write that check. Sure. And so like just what, I, what you said, one of the lessons you learned is I'd rather get in bigger deals, but in order to do that, um, you really have to even have your expertise and access to capital and probably yeah. more capital yourself. And that and, just takes time to build. Right. And your yeah. LP, your LP that's considering doing that themselves, they may not even have that option, right? Yeah. Where they can invest a smaller check or uh, the check that they would do themselves into your fund. Yeah. And then they get access to those bigger deals. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a, I, and, and also, and also like exposure to enough that it starts to make sense, particularly on the VC side um, or the angel side. The other day I had an opportunity to invest in open AI and, um, and like, it seems like a sure thing, but at the same time, I know if I'm going to, you know, if you're going to angel invest, you got to have exposure to 20 deals. Totally. Otherwise yeah. it just doesn't make sense. Right. Like, you know, the, uh, the and the, what are the comps and you need to like, you know, yeah. So, so, so I didn't do the deal. Cause I'm like, I'm not gonna, I know I'm not gonna go to 20 deals. Right. So I'm probably gonna find a VC fund um, to part, you know, to put money with. And then I get exposure to those 20 deals and you know, exactly, you know, exactly to what your point is. Right. Then I get, I also get exposure to better deals. Right. Right. Cause they're going to look at more deals. Yep. And same with what you guys do. Right. Yep. They're going to look at 2000 deals where you might have time to look at 10 deals. Totally. Yep. Absolutely. And they're going to, they're going to know the space. You cannot be an expert in everything. Right. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm cool if, you know, I'm, you know, I, I don't expect my mechanic to take out my gallbladder. Right. And I don't expect my doctor to change my oil. Right. So, um, so having your expertise, knowing your expertise, I actually, so I come from the software world. I built a software company before I started in real estate and I love what I do and I love real estate and I went into it for a very specific reason. But if I was just trying to get exposure to real estate, to allocate to real estate, I, I did the worst possible path. I should have just stayed in my lane. <laughs> right. And, you know, I create, I built out my expertise. I, you know, I took my lumps. I spent a ton of time and effort in it and I love it. But if I was just trying to allocate to real estate, it was the worst possible way to but do it. But I think this is, this is an, an important point because, you know, unless you're wanting to be the king or yeah. be really good at said thing and spend yeah. the next decade it's really, you know, hey, I'm just going to go buy a property and, you know, fuss around with this for the next two years. That's got to be the worst time investment, not even totally. dollar investment, yep. just time investment. Well, side note, there's there's a book called um, So Good They Can't Ignore You. And I haven't read it. I have it on my list. I have it on my shelf. Yeah. So the, the sum of the book is essentially they, they follow these people like the um, the VP at a corporation that always want to be a yoga instructor. And they kind of track all these different people that shift their careers drastically to something that they felt like they had a big passion for. And what they find is that the life satisfaction isn't as great because they're going through those those kind of bumps in the road. But yeah. also they went from being an expert in their respective lane to now being yeah. the the lowest like kind of notch on the totem pole. Totally. And that's yeah. a there's a there's a mental tax to that where yeah. it's like I went from knowing everything about something yeah. um, to I know nothing about something. Totally. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, especially for really smart people that are good in an area, like it's, you know, they've always been winners. And so they're like, I'm going to go win at this too. Right. But it's like the, it's the worst investment on time. Um, you know, you absolutely can you go do this and go be super successful at it? I think you can. I think that like real estate is really like, you don't have to be that bright. Um, you know, I, I, I you know, I'm, I, I, but I just, there's still a learning curve. Well, but there's a huge learning curve. Absolutely. Right. So it's like, you know, you can go spend your time and go do it. Um, and you could absolutely become good at it, but like, what are you sacrificing instead? So, you know, a good buddy of mine, um, he makes like a couple million dollars in profit on his practice. He's a, he's a specialized surgeon. Mm. Right. And like, is his time better spent? Like, you know, is his time better spent building out his practice that is already massively profitable and adding a few more doctors and surgeons, et cetera, and, and, and opening a new location and doing what he's great at. And, and he knows really well and has been yep. doing it for the last decade. And yep. And then allocating with experts in their fields, or is he better at trying to become a new expert in a totally new field? Right, right. And and also, like like you said, if you just want to dabble in a new field, you're not going to have those returns. You're not going to have that yeah. that performance. Yeah, yeah. I, I think if you want to dabble in it because you want because you think it'll be fun and it's a hobby, that's great. If you're a capital allocator, it's like it's crazy. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, I think we all have that that friend. Or family members. Somewhere. I mean, I've been there. Like, right. like I think we've it. all yeah, been yeah, there. Yeah, just like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm yeah. going to do that. And, yeah. and it's like, I'm going to yellow into bank stocks. Right, know? right. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to trade stocks for a while. Yeah, or I'm going to, yeah. yeah, you see this all the time in crypto. Like, I'm going to be in crypto. And it's like, everyone went to crypto, right? Yeah, yeah. right. And it's so like, okay. Everyone, and everyone got burned. So, right, right. Yeah. But yeah. I'm still, they, they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, right. No, absolutely. I think that, yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to do, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's not a winning strategy. Yeah. So let's talk about your firm and your guys' winning strategy. I know you said you guys um, have a simple kind of duplicative strategy, but it sounds like performance, excellence, consistency is what's really set you guys apart. Yeah. I mean, you also yeah. just before this, you even talked to us about how you had an offsite with your team and that, you know, you're working with higher end people like to tell us about tell us about the talent you have. Yeah. So I think that, you know, what 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 makes us special is not that our strategy is terribly special, right? We're, we're selling toothpaste and, you know, there's all these benefits in toothpaste. If you use toothpaste, it, you know, you you live 10 years longer, et cetera. But at the end of the day, you're just buying fucking toothpaste, right? So, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think that our, you know, we're not building a better mousetrap and we aren't claiming that we're building a better mousetrap, but I think we are focused on executing better, right? On being real operators, on investing in our business for the long term. There are in real estate, there are deal guys, and then there are people that are building firms and, 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 and kind of holding company operating businesses and deal guys are great. They, you know, they've been around since, you know, dawn of time. I'm sure you guys know a couple of deal guys, mm -hmm. but you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, a, it's hard to support a bunch of outside capital that way. B it's hard to scale that way um, because it's basically all reliant on a single principle and C it's, it's really, you know, it's really it's really like there's there's a magic. It's more of the art instead of the science. Well, for the audience, define what you mean by deal guy. Like a deal guy, like you know, uh, does maybe like one or two kind of unique deals a year. Um, relies on a handful of broker relationships and has a contractor that he works with. Has a contractor he works with. Will pull in some friend or family money to do the deal, etc. Um, you know, most of the deal is like based on his unique knowledge of the market. He's mm. probably doing something else. He's probably maybe doing something else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and those guys are fine. They make a bunch of money, um, and they do, but I think that, 
over time, I think we, we will, we will beat those guys every single time. And, and we will definitely grow faster than those guys every single time because we are investing like those guys. It's like one guy and maybe like a bookkeeper. So a deal right? guy may come to you and say, Hey, uh, it's been six months. I have another deal. Do you want in? Let's talk about how you guys are different than that. Yeah. I mean, so, so we, um, I mean, we're a little bit more programmatic. So we, we, first off, we, we invest heavily in our talent. So we have an asset manager that came from DRA who used to run a, you know, $750 million book of book of deals. Mm. Right. Um, we have, I, I mentioned earlier, right. We have, you know, we have dozens of analysts, not dozens. We have a dozen analysts in different, you know, either in the acquisition side or in the asset management side, we have VP of acquisitions that came over from, you know, a large institutional player. We have a VP of asset manager, sorry, investor relations and capital formation um, also with like institutional background. So I think what, kind of makes us unique is our institutional approach at a sub-institutional scale. And so our nimbleness and that, you know, our nimbleness, our return profile, because we are going after kind of the sub-institutional deals and have a higher cost of capital. Um, and we're producing kind of higher returns than the institutional class is, but with the institutional kind of quality of talent of processes, like for example, I know a lot of guys in our space and I talk to them and when I talk to them, you know, they're looking at like valuation on very simple terms, right? My partner, you, you're good friends with my partner. Um, he's an ex like JP Morgan fixed income trader, worked in private equity with BlackRock and, you know, and Deutsche Bank and like a whole bunch of other things. And he has a 175 point matrix on how we look at valuation mm. and basis on a deal, right? So, <clears throat> um, so you're getting kind of a, a really high like institutional class, you know, set of processes, execution and talent. Um, but while still, you know, you can still write us a couple hundred thousand dollar check and, and we'll take it right. The institutional guys won't call you back unless you got a million bucks. So it's like um, for your check, you get access to that whole team. You get access to that whole team. Yeah. yeah. And something we like to talk about here is that when you're hiring and when you're investing in a fund, you're doing what all the wealthiest people in the world do is they're yeah. farming out their they're, they're hiring experts on their behalf to manage their money. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and uh, so we are, you know, we're also moving towards like a fund strategy as well. I think you mentioned like, is it just, you know, every six months I got a deal? No, you know, you can invest into a fund, you get risk adjusted returns across a set of assets, even if, you know, we, we don't have, we've never had an asset go to zero, but, um, but, you know, you do have, a, if you have an underperforming asset or something that is, you know, that is, equaled out by having a higher performed asset. Right. Right. And so you kind of get that kind of risk adjusted returns by having the exposure to several different deals. Even if you're only investing a couple hundred thousand dollars, um, normally if you're, you know, you'd, you'd have to invest, you know, let's say you'd have to invest maybe over five deals that a fund has exposure to, you'd have to invest $500,000, but you can easily have access and, and have that exposure to those five different assets with a couple hundred thousand dollar check with a, you know, with a fund strategy. I think that's worth highlighting. I didn't realize how much of real estate was a deal by deal basis. Tons and I that. think that puts, I mean, if you think about the value add that you guys bring um, in terms of all the deep dives and, 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 and the work you do, if, you know, I think like when I think as an investor, if somebody presents to me, well, okay, we're going to do 10 different deals. Which one do you want? That almost defeats the purpose because it's like, well, now I have to choose. And so yeah. it's very interesting to highlight that you guys are moving to this fund model. And for the audience, that means, you know, you're going to have 
10 or 20 or whatever the number is investments within that. So you're investing in all those, your money gets spread out and you diversification, um, which is, I think it's, it's a lot better because you don't have that pressure and anxiety as an investor. Like, did I pick the right right one? There's trade-offs, you know, I'm sure, sure, you know, like, you know, if you, I know people that invest in a certain syndication because they know, and a syndication meaning one project or one apartment building because they know Denver really well. Like I've invested in a syndication here in Denver. It's like, I know the location really well. It's a couple blocks from here. I know the area. It's like, I I know the neighborhoods, like you've been talking about, like all of those things. And so that felt like a a much more comfortable bet for me to make. Mm. Um, Whereas pretty much in all, all of my other investments have been, yeah. yeah, I I think there's a time and place for both. I think that it goes back to what you were saying earlier, though. Like, do you think you're going to be better choosing deals than I am? And like, maybe you are. Like, I don't know. Like, and I'm not saying you particularly, yeah. but like an LP, you as an LP, Cody, you'd probably be better at picking. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, not in Denver. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I, I think that that's often we we have some large family offices that invest with us and at the end of the day, you know what I was talking with them about, they, they want to look at every individual deal. Sure. Like, we don't want to come into a fund. We want to look at every individual deal. And at the end of the day, you know, and, 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 and now they've kind of come around. I'm like, are you, you know, do you think you're going to be better at choosing deals than us? You know, I mean, cause you know, and, and we talk about the, you know, we just talked about like the expertise and the team, et cetera. And it's like, you guys are allocating to a specific strategy. And at the end of the day, you're allocating to an operator. Yeah. Um, you know, I think everyone thinks they're going to underwrite a deal, but I don't think you can underwrite a deal better than we're going to underwrite a deal. And honestly, if we want, you know, if we, if we wanted to hide something, we could hide something, right? Every single operator, every single GP sponsor can. And so at the end of the day, you're really investing in an operator. You're investing in, you know, their, their honesty, their integrity, their ability to execute. Um, and it's highly unlikely that you're going to be better at deal selection than they are, or that you're going to have a asymmetric set of information than they are. Right. Um, you know, like I said, I, we would never hide information, but I'm just saying from a pure, um, from a pure, like, uh, logical perspective, right. We're always going to have a, we're always going to have an information, you know, asymmetry to, uh, to what you have, right. Because we are, you know, we just have access to much more information. So, well, you have a whole team gathering and we have a whole team So analyzing the information and going through it. Is that transition from syndication to a fund, like the natural progression as a, as an operator that's doing well? I think so. Yeah, I, I really do think so. I think it's a, it makes a lot more sense for an operator to have a fund versus have a, you know, being, be on an individual deal basis. Um, there are, you know, there are some probably some downsides to look out for. I think that, for example, um, you know, sometimes what people worry about is if you have a fund, you have a you have an incentive to get capital out, even if you don't have good deals. Um, and so, you know, we like to either we're doing something kind of interesting on our first fund where um, where there's it's a, it's a little bit of a different setup where there's no incentive to kind of get money out on any specific time period. Um, but the other thing that you can do, you know, you can look for in a sponsor is does my promote just accrue on commit, does it, does it accrue on committed capital or just on contributed capital? And so if it's just on contributed capital, well, then they don't have an IRR drag. So they don't have the incentive to get capital out you know, on a specific time frame, even if the deals aren't there to be had. Um, and you would want that in a situation like last year where there's a huge bid ask spread where buyers were like, my cost of capital just 
you know, tripled. Um, but buy, but sellers were still stuck to the old prices. Right. And like, like I said, last year we thought we were going to do four or five deals and we did two. So you definitely want to watch out for that and make sure you have like the right incentives. But I do think that, you know, funds, fund structures, you know, in general, I think it's probably an, indi- I think it's a, it's a much, it makes a lot more sense on an execution basis than individual deals. You can focus on fundraising while you're fundraising and you can focus on execution while you're executing. And you don't have to, you know, try to do both at the same time during an acquisition, which can be really stressful. Uh, any other kind of questions you have? No, uh, I, anything, I anything you want to make sure that we've covered that we might have not talked about? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. I think that, uh, you know, people, we could probably talk about market timing. Okay. Yeah, um, I would love that. Really quickly, I think that a lot of people that I talk to that are not professional allocators are like, you know, you know, are really nervous. Like, you know, if I wait, is there going to be, are there going to be better opportunities? Right. Um, or I'm waiting. I'm constantly waiting. I'm waiting. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I, I've, <laughs> I'm cash on the sidelines ready to right. deploy. Right. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, one, I would say that that's the benefit of a fund. I would say the second thing is you never really know where a bottom is. And if you're a serious capital allocator, you're, you know, I think what you're looking to do is to deploy into good assets at a fair basis with a long-term time horizon and to, you know, and to execute on a great strategy, right? I think Warren Buffett, you know, consistently says like, listen, if we could time the market, we'd be, you know, we'd be trillionaires, Right. right? But what we do is we find good assets or, you know, good companies with wonderful operators and management. Um, and we buy it at a fair price and we hold it for a very long period of time. And I think that, you know, if you are a serious capital allocator, you're always in the market. You're always, um, you know, you're always doing deals. You're always doing opportunities and you're looking to buy at a fair price. At, you know, you're buying, looking to buy great assets at a fair price, fair basis and, you know, hold them for a very long period of time. Um, you know, I think that there are probably different vintages that produce different results. You know, 2023 to 2024 is probably going to be some of the best vintage that you buy. 2021 is probably going to be, you know, vintage that, you know, is not going to be as, you know, it's not going to have as immediate high of returns um, because you're paying a higher basis, but it's going to produce excellent returns over the next five to seven years. And so I think that, you know, you always want to be in the market as a serious, uh, you know, allocator. And I don't think that, you know, you're, you're probably not, uh, you know, I, th- I think you're probably not right now, right? For example, who knows, right? Maybe the market dips another 20% or, you know, another 10%, but I can tell you it's already dipped 20% off the highs. Right. Right. So like, am I going to time it? Am I going to hit the perfect bottom in that market? And you should probably. be dollar cost averaging. Yeah. yeah. You should be dollar cost averaging anyways. So um, I think that's a question we get a lot is like, you know, is this the best time? And I'm, you know, we're waiting for the fallout. Right. And, yeah. And it's interesting because always as a GP or I could imagine, you know, I sitting here as the LP you sitting there as the GP, I ask you this question, of course, you know, whatever answer you give me, I'm going to think that you're biased because you want me to put money in the fund. But, sure. but really it is like, I'm still making investments yeah. now. And I was making investments before the crash. Like, yep. And, and and I'm not just saying real estate. I'm investing like I'm you know I make LP investments and I'm investing into tech right now. Yeah. Um, in fact, I think it's like a great time to be investing totally. in tech, right? Like so. Hundred percent. So everyone's you know the, the the funny thing is is everyone always says everyone always says I'm waiting for distress, but when there's real distress, they're too shit scared to, to deploy. Yeah. Yeah. It's really so hard. Uh, there's I, huge distress in tech right now. Like, what are you talking about? I yeah. see this with obviously crypto, right? Yeah. You have these 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 big waves and. Um, 
it's it's just so fascinating to me. It's also interesting how people will, an LP will think, which I think this is wrong as an LP. Yeah. Um, they'll think I'm timing the market by timing an entry into a fund. Yeah, that's and it, also- a and, and it's sort of like, no, no, no. Like Our if investment you, period is two years. Yeah, if you trust yeah. the fund managers, yeah. they're going to be deploying and and kind of, you know, timing appropriately. Like they have a whole sure. team figuring that out. Um, and it's not like you write a check and they're just going to, everything's deployed in the market. Next day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But a lot of it's people gone. don't, don't think that way. And, and, you know, it's like you said, the Warren Buffett principles, it is the easiest. So a lot of things in life are simple, but hard, right? It's the easiest thing to say, I'm going to, you know, sell high, buy low. Um, I find that very few people are able to buy low because they're always worried about going lower. Most people do the exact opposite, right? 2021, everyone was clamoring to get in at these crazy high prices yeah. in every asset class, right? Yeah. Like real every estate, crypto, class. tech, whatever. Um, but now that everything's down, yeah. totally. They're scared to do but it. But if you had so, asked yeah. them in 2021, hey, if this asset is now 20% less, they'd be like, oh, I would I would buy more of them. Yeah. And yeah. then it's like, but they're not buying any now. Because um, it's hard. It's just yeah. hard. You it's, know? It's, it's really hard. I mean, investor temperament. Like your temperament as an investor is going to be a far higher indicator of returns than your selection. Yeah. I think. And, you know, having the ability to deploy when everyone's scared, you know, being being greedy when everyone's fearful, fearful when everyone's greedy. It sounds easy, but it's actually really hard. We have this joke in real estate that everyone, everyone, you know, everyone wants to invest in distress, but they all want distress to look like class A multifamily that's 98% yeah. occupied. Yeah. Yeah. Not office, yeah. which is getting fucking We're hammered not affordable right now. housing. Right, right, We're yeah. not, you or know, affordable like, housing. Yeah, yeah. It's this funny, weird, like, psychology that I want to invest in distress, but, like, only if distress looks like this pristine asset, which is not distress. Yeah. So, right, right. Anyways. Yeah. Um, well, this has been awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, thank you for coming, coming on. on the show. Thank My you. pleasure, guys. Yeah. It was, it was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. Good to see you again. And good yeah. to meet you. Yeah. So, pleasure.